Julie Vanessa Mam. She is currently the sanctuary director of the Libasa Wildlife Sanctuary in Liberia, and she is also one of the most nicest human beings I have ever had the chance to talk to. She has truly worked as an underdog and continues to do so for the welfare of wildlife in Liberia, and that's why even the sanctuary is called the Sanctuary of the Underdogs. In this podcast, we talked about the work that Libasa Wildlife Sanctuary is doing for the wildlife of Liberia. Apart from this, we talked about the ground reality of the wildlife in Liberia and the situations that are forcing people to commit such crimes of hunting and killing animals. This podcast is in all the ground reality of Liberian wildlife and how an organization is working day and night to bring a change, and yet no one knows them. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast as much as I did while recording it. Julie Vanessa, ma'am, thank you so much for coming to the Peace Wildlife Show. First of all, like I really appreciate you taking out time for this show. Like I really thought that it won't be possible for you to come to the mm-hmm, show because mm-hmm. considering so busy you are um, for the Amlibasa um, Wildlife Sanctuary and doing all sorts of work. So like how's it going on there? Thank you very much for having me. Um, so um, yeah, it's kind of busy here. So um, we now have uh, we've done some releases. So we've released five animals um, a few days ago. And now another pangolin came in yesterday, so it's uh, pretty busy. Ah, so ma'am, like um, in all of our lives, like particularly considering the wildlife enthusiast, um, all the people indulge in wildlife, we all have a magical moment um with animals. Like it can be a sort of like chain of series of magical moments that like makes us go for wildlife and like pursue it as a career. Mm-hmm. So like. what was that magical moment first of all in your life with an animal that made you like decide that this this is what i want to devote my life for um so i've always worked with wild animals i i worked with uh, chimpanzees and gorillas but that was more in a zoo setting and i just wanted to be more hands on in conservation and then i applied for the job here in uh, liberia to start a brand new sanctuary and it was actually when the the first animals started coming in and the first releases that i did that i realized that i wanted to continue this this path and of course um uh, some you know a, a pangolin came in and i had to take care of this pangolin for a year and then eventually it got released and so these are the, you, uh, the when the animals come in they're usually very stressed very dehydrated sometimes injured sometimes hanging on to life and then when you can you know make them all better again and if you can then return them to the forest it's a very rewarding feeling and so this this is you know the end goal and this is why why we why I do it and why I continue to do it so yeah but like while you were pursuing your journey like when you were a zookeeper and you used to work with chimps and gorillas and you came to liberia for the libasa wildlife sanctuary so did you face any barriers from your fa- friends and relatives because of the cliche they have for wildlife because it's happening with me like even when i'm saying that i need to go for a camp or volunteer somewhere they are like where will you live you need to like live under a tree and that sort of stuff did you face those barriers So when I told everybody that I was coming to Liberia a lot of people um only know Liberia from the civil wars and the Ebola crisis so they were a very they were a bit worried uh, for that but because the um, you know Ebola's under control the country's now stable I feel safe here um yeah things calmed down but yeah of course people don't know a lot about Liberia I had to google it myself where it was 
And uh, so, yeah, a lot of friends and family were worried, but no need, no need to worry. <laughs> so how did you convince them? Well, I just uh, gave them regular updates on how I was doing and I just made sure that I was safe because I'm not really in the bush. Um, I am on the, I'm not in town. I'm, of course, in, a, I'm in a very green area, but I mean, the nearest town is half an hour away. So I'm not, uh, I'm not in the bush bush. I have uh, a nice room. I have, you know, hot water and, and current. So, I mean, I'm, I'm all right. It's not like I have to survive in a tent. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, <laughs> that, that, yeah, yeah. And then when I gave regular updates, they, they, yeah, they were, they calmed down. Everybody calmed down. <laughs> That's what people don't understand, I feel. So like particularly at Liberia, are you guys only working with rehabilitation sort of stuff or like it involves like other work as well? Like a particular sanctuary setting, do you keep like animals for showing others and educating as um, educating others as well or is it only like rehabilitation stuff? Yes, so basically our main mission is to release. That is our main mission. But 90% of the animals that come in are babies and still have to be hand reared and bottle fed. And we keep everything very professional. We, um, you know, we don't, uh, um, apart from the monkeys, of course, they need human interaction for their mental well-being. But when it comes to other animals, we try to keep uh, human contact to a minimum. So we don't talk to them. We don't play with them. We don't interact with them. We just feed and we get out because we don't want these animals to get attached to us. They still have to go back into the wild and they cannot like people. So, um, of course, sometimes this works, sometimes this doesn't work. And there are animals that have lost their fear of people. And these animals cannot go back into the wild because if we release them and they see a person in the nearest village or they see a hunter, they will go straight to that person and they will get killed. So any, our main mission is release, but any animal that we cannot release... We keep at the sanctuary and then when people come for tours or when schools come, uh, then at least we can educate children on the wildlife that lives in Liberia and how they can protect them and why they are necessary in Liberia and why they shouldn't be killed. So the majority gets released, but there's always a small amount of animals that we cannot release and these are used for education. But like um, after listening to a number of podcasts that you had recorded earlier, I like and after like doing my research, I found out that two animals that are a big task to rehabilitate are monkeys and pangolins, right? So like first of all, talking about monkeys, like what's the big deal about them? So for monkeys, the problem is so um, so the the all the monkeys that are at the sanctuary are orphans. So their mothers are killed for the bush meat for the for the meat they are eaten. And then the babies are a bonus and are sold off as pets. So when you want to take a baby monkey, you cannot just take a baby monkey off its mother because the whole family will protect the baby. So you basically have to kill most of the family in order to get the baby. So what the, all the monkeys at the sanctuary have witnessed is pure horror. Um, they have seen their mothers being killed. They've seen their families being killed. So first of all, there's the, the mental trauma, the psychological trauma that they, that they had to endure. Um, but then when it comes to their rehabilitation, so monkeys have a very long childhood because they have a lot to learn. They need to know what to eat and what not to eat and the trees, 
which you know the, the trees bear which fruits and what season and the dangers of the forest and social structure and the, it, there's so much to learn um, being a monkey and these are things that they would learn from their mothers but their mothers have been killed so we have to teach that for them so um, monkeys have very strong family bonds and you cannot just release a single monkey in the forest and wish it well it will probably die so here at the sanctuary we first start to uh, we try to establish uh, strong groups with strong bonds nobody here is related of course but somehow after a long time they become like a family and uh, they have strong bonds they know the hierarchy um, and when that happens and they are old enough uh, then we can start thinking about release. But so monkeys is a very, a very long process to rehabilitate and to release. So as you said that the mothers teach the um, baby chimps or the baby monkeys how to survive in the wild. So how do you guys replicate that in captivity? So in captivity, there's not that much we can do um, except um, try and offer them their natural diet when we can. So of course we also feed them uh, pineapple and watermelon and, and potato and of course these are things that they will never find in the rainforest but when we can we do offer them wild fruits as well so that at least they know what to look for in the forest but the major thing that happens is during the release so we do a soft release or at least we want to do a soft release because we have never done this before we are actually raising funds at the moment to release our first group of Suti Mangabees so we do a soft release, and so for the first six months, we will still provide food for them twice a day. And so they can get to know the forest in their own time without having to worry about food. And then after six months, we feed them once a day to encourage them to go and find their own food. But they will be monitored, they will be followed with the use of trackers. And then after another, uh, let's say, few months, we stop feeding them completely. And then uh, we still follow them, we will still monitor them. But by that time, they've been a year in the forest with additional feeding. They have, you know, they got to know the forest and, and what grows where and when. And then, um, yeah, the biggest part of their rehabilitation is actually during the soft release. What happens at the sanctuary is the bonding process, making sure that we have stable groups, strong groups with strong relationships, and then the second step of the rehabilitation is basically after release. And like what more species of monkeys do you get? Like are they the ones that have been brought because of the illegal wildlife trade or being kept as pets? Like what's the prime reason and which particular species of monkeys do you get more often? Well, it's, it's both. So, so um, whenever a monkey is being killed for the meat and she carries a baby, then the baby will be sold as pets. So um, all the monkeys that were here, that are here at the sanctuary, um, were sold as pets and their mothers have been killed. So it's, it's basically both. And the, major the, the, the species that we have the most of at the moment is the Suti Mangabi. And um, it's a... Yeah, it's a medium-sized monkey, um, gray, and nobody knows about Suti Mangabees, but if um, it's a very popular pet here in Liberia, unfortunately, although all monkeys are protected by law, 
but um, it's a protected species and um, very commonly kept, unfortunately. There are many sooty mango bees um, chained or on a, on a rope or a chain in someone's house. So, yeah. But then we also have spot-nosed monkeys, we have Campbell's monkeys, we have uh, Patus monkeys, we have green monkeys. So, um, yeah, a lot of monkeys. I think we have 96 at the moment. Yeah, 96 monkeys. Like particularly talking about the green monkeys, recently we had shared an update of a rescue where the FDA got a green monkey with the pole itself. So, like, do you have a story for that for the listeners? Yes, so we have a confiscation unit, which is basically a team of trained FDA rangers who go out on patrols and when they see any illegal wildlife activity, they report it and when there's a live animal involved, they bring it to the sanctuary. And this was one of those um, cases where um, the, the confiscation unit, they were going on a patrol and they saw this monkey in a community being tied to a pole. And so they wanted to um, uh, find the, well, I wouldn't call it the owner because, you know, the, the person who, who bought the monkey, but that person wasn't home at the time. And so um, in order to save the monkey anyway, they decided not to wait for the owner to come home. And uh, they wanted to take the monkey off the pole. But they couldn't take him off. The chain was too hard and too rusty. So they were very determined to bring the monkey to the sanctuary anyway. And so they just took pole and everything, pole and monkey, put everything in the truck and then brought him here. And now he's, uh, he's doing fine. So uh, yeah, we're very, very happy with the confiscation unit. And um, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's a great collaboration. So like you said, you have 96 monkeys. I can imagine yeah. like so many of them were kept as pets. Similarly, like in India, like, um, People are keeping those small marmosets. They're like, they're like, these are like pocket monkeys, what they call them. Yes. And they keep them in the pockets and like small bird cages. It feels like really bad. Like it has, in, like in India, it has the exotic pet trade has popped suddenly. They've started keeping meerkats, marmosets. The animals I used to watch on Nadjo, like I'm watching them in small cages now. Yeah. It feels like really bad. Yes, exactly. It is, it is very bad. Yeah, like it's cruel. Even though they are captive bred, they have some natural instincts in them. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. And especially for monkeys. Uh, monkeys are very, very intelligent. They are very social. And they need a group and a family um, to survive. Um, for not just their mental health, but just to survive. And it is incredibly cruel to take a, basically it's kidnapping, to take an animal from its home, from its forest, kill its mother right in front of his eyes, so that you can have a monkey in your pocket. It's just selfish human greed. Um, the, we as humans, we think about what we want, but actually we should think about what does the monkey want? And actually what the monkey wants is to stay in the forest with its mother. It does not want to be with people at all. It had a beautiful life of its own. And we just took it from the forests for our own selfish greed. So um, this is something that people really should understand. You should put yourself in the animal's position and just think about how you would feel if your family was murdered in front of your eyes and you were kidnapped from your home to be kept in, ho in a home with a different species. So, um, yeah, it is very cruel. It's a very cruel trade. Like, it's sad. 
so now moving on to the pangolins like they are another animal that are that is like very difficult to keep keep in captivity so how do you guys rehabilitate a pangolin like what's the procedure yes so basically we have learned all our knowledge and skills from the tiki highwood foundation in zimbabwe and so basically what we do is so pangolins they only eat ants and termites and because we cannot feed them ants and termites in a bowl um, we have to walk them in the forest. And so pangolins are relatively slow animals. And what we do is two to three times a day for about an hour, an hour and a half, we walk them in the forest. And when they're babies, we help them, uh, like their mother would help them. Uh, we help them break branches because sometimes they are not strong enough to break palm branches or to break ant nests. So we help them a little. Um, and so we walk them in the forest and we let them forage for their own food. Um, and then we weigh them before the walk, we weigh them after the walk, and then this way we can tell how much they ate. And um, so, yeah, it's a very labor-intensive um, process. And so they sleep in wooden boxes, which resembles um, a den in the wild. So, um, yeah, um, it's a, it's a very labor-intensive process, yeah. So, like, which particular species do you get of pangolins more often? Like, because Liberia has only three subspecies of pangolins. Yes. So, which ones are more often at the sanctuary? Exactly. So, here in Liberia, we have the white-bellied pangolin, the black-bellied pangolin, and the giant pangolin. But here at the sanctuary, we've only had white-bellied and black-bellied. Yeah. So is there a specific reason why they are hunted more often? Um, it's just that the giant pangolin is very elusive. It's very, very hard to find. Um, yeah, and, and the, the white-bellied and the black-bellied are, um, I would also think, more common to, yeah, more common to find, yeah. So while rehabilitating, do, do pangolins also form some kind of bond with the, like, the person who is taking care of them, like monkeys? That's actually a good question. Um, so, um, they don't bond with us that much, but after a few days, they do feel comfortable in our presence, which is very important to walk them. Um, the worst thing is that a pangolin is absolutely terrified of us and he runs away from us instead of trying to eat while we take him in the forest. So with pangolins, there's a very thin line um, they, so they, they, pangolins have a great sense of smell and if always the same person handles the pangolin they will, they will recognize the scent and they will feel more relaxed in, in the person's presence and then if someone else for example walks the pangolin they will not recognize the scent and they will, they will panic a little so I wouldn't say that they bond with us that much but they feel comfortable in our presence which is... Um, which is very good because we've, every time we release a pangolin, um, they just take off and they don't follow us back to our car and they don't see where we are. They don't care about us, which is great. That's what we want. But at the same time, we also want them to feel relaxed in our presence in order for them to eat. So it, with pangolins, it's a very thin line. But yeah, um, they don't really bond. But because like pangolins are endangered, some of them are endangered and some of them are critically endangered. Yes. Do you like chip them or something or track them? Not at the moment because we are still trying to develop the correct system to do that. Um, we, so the, the scales of, for example, a white-bellied pangolin are very thin and very fragile. 
and it is not easy to put a, a microchip or a transmitter onto their scales because the last thing we want to do is attach a transmitter or a transponder to a pangolin and that it hinders him in his everyday life. He still has to be able to climb, he cannot get stuck in the branches, he still has to be able to roll in a ball, um, you know, it, it cannot bother him in any way. So it's very difficult to find or create a transponder or, or any tracking device that doesn't harm or hinder the pangolin, but also gives us sufficient, sufficient data um, after release. But we are working on this as we speak, and it will be very interesting once we have it, that we can finally see and learn more about pangolins after release. So are you guys into like breeding pangolins as well? Because it's a mammoth task to breed pangolins in captivity because they can't replicate the natural environment. But have you like tried any breeding project? No, no, that is impossible. Um, it is already hard enough to keep pangolins alive in captivity. So breeding them is unfortunately not an option. Um, the best thing we can do for them is just to leave them in the forests and reproduce naturally because in captivity it will it will not happen <laughs> it will not happen so yeah yeah so this was like the rehabilitation part that libas is involved in uh -huh. so are you guys also involved in like um one-to-one -one educational programs like do you guys visit rural areas to educate people yes um so we offer tours at the sanctuary and then of course we only show animals that cannot be released the animals that we can release are uh, kept away from people and um, so we offer tours uh, for anyone interested in visiting but then we also do a lot of tours and um, education programs for schools so a lot of schools come to the sanctuary to learn about wildlife and um, yeah that's basically our main focus because half the population in Liberia is uh, youth and so if we get them on board um, yeah then, then half the country understands the, the need for wildlife conservation. So that would be great. So that's what we're focusing on. So are you guys visiting the rural areas to educate the hunters? Because I feel that most of the hunters don't even know about the laws and yes. the rules about pangolins, them being critically endangered. Because for them, it's only like a one-day meal. That's what they're working for. Because they won't get anything by selling a kilo of pangolin scales and having $10. It won't fetch them even rice as well. Yes, so um, on a more national scale, we work together with uh, partners, with other NGOs, and then we have billboards and we have awareness days. And we, we for example, have World Pangolin Day, World Wildlife Day, World Biodiversity Day. Uh, we play songs on the radio um, to encourage people to leave animals in the forest. There's drama, uh, like plays um, to educate people because not everybody can read. So if we can explain the need for wildlife conservation um, through, uh, through theater, uh, that's also a great tool. So yes, we, we actually focus a lot on, uh, on awareness. Um, like, um, does your awareness um, only involve educating people about the basic facts? Or like, like Libasa has, like people in Liberia, do they have um, superstitions and myths about some animals as well? Because in India, like particularly talking about India, there is a big myth and superstition thing about snakes. So I like try my best to post things and like tell my family and friends because they think like a snake is a vicious revenge seeking animal. It would come after them and kill them at night and just run away. 
So like, do you have some animals like people have a lot of myths and superstitions about? Yes, exactly. Snakes as well. So here in Liberia, a lot of, I've already heard a lot of people say the best snake is a dead snake. And uh, then, of course, same as you, uh, which I have to commend you for that. <laughs> I have to uh, explain to people, no, if you leave them alone, they will leave you alone. And um, one, of, one of the bigger myths, I would say, but then that's for all animals, is that uh, all life in the forest is infinite. And that you can just take as much as you want. There will always be animals forever which is the biggest myth of all, because this is not true. We take more than, than nature can, can, you know, than animals can reproduce. I mean, this is why, for example, pangolins are endangered. There just aren't many left. Our timney parrots, they're endangered. Um, you know, a lot of monkey species are, go, are, are listed as vulnerable or endangered as well. Life in the forest is not infinite. You cannot just take and take and take and take for a hundred years to come. It will end one day. And if it does, it is a global disaster. So this is actually the biggest myth that um, we are completely destroying the balance in the forest because we take more than nature can give us. And so, yeah, it's, it's a big problem. So this, this, I would have to say, is the biggest one. Yeah, so like um, I'm not targeting a particular cultural group, but there is a um, ritual or basically a festival in India known as Nag Panchmi. So Nag Panchmi basically mm-hmm. people worship snake by feeding them milk. So like it's killing them and worshiping them. So we have a snake charmer who visits every street and shows a cobra and like plays a bean and makes him dance that sort of thing. So. My mother is so scared. She says that one day you're going to go down and just punch him in the face and educate people like what's, what he really is doing. But the thing is that people are so rigid for traditions and things that they're going to beat me for sure. How do you deal with a person um, who is like very rigid about traditions, who has believed that snakes are vicious killing animals? Do you have a thing you can like convince them with? Because facts don't work against traditions, I feel. Logic like is beaten by tradition badly. It yeah, it really all depends on the person. I mean, some people are open-minded and some are not. And I have done a lot of tours and talks to people and educating people where I feel like at the end of my speech something clicked and people understand what I mean and people think yeah maybe she is right, you know maybe maybe she has a point. But then at the same time I've had people who were who don't believe me or who, or who that think that I am wrong. <laughs> and so I really think it depends on the person you're talking to, if that person is open-minded or not, if they are willing to listen to what we have to say, or if they just go in from uh, the start thinking, no, no, I will not change my ways. I've been doing this for 50 years. I will not change my ways now just because you tell me. So it's very difficult. You can never convince everyone, which is very frustrating. You can never convince everyone of the good. But hey, we can only explain and hope that uh, if everybody says the same thing, I mean, for you in India and and me in Liberia, if we all say the same thing, I mean, we cannot all be wrong. (laughs) So uh, yeah, we just, yeah, we just have to keep spreading the word and, and, and yeah. Hold, hang in there. <laughs> so another like important question I really wanted to ask. Um, so are you aware of Irula tribe in India or Romvitaker? 
any of the names no so ram vitiger is basically a person who came to india long back and he was the person who started herpetology in india he came from like abroad i'm not aware of which particular country so he came here and he started herpetology so in india we have a tribe named irula tribe they are considered the like best snake catchers of the world like the best snake catching tribe so before he came um they used to catch snakes because like it's like ir- really easy for them to so they used to catch snakes kill them and sell them to the skin industry but after some time it got banned and they were out of business so ram vitaker what he did was like he used their skill of catching snakes but then he set up a like a venom extraction place so now irula tribe is involved in extracting venom and they are like accountable for 95% of anti venom production in india and they still catch snakes but now they are catching snakes for rescue purpose and venom extraction so are you guys involved in the same thing like have you even tried or are you in the process of maybe using the same skills of hunters and gatherers and using to um your purpose because they are the ones who like can easily track an animal in the forest like it's their ability to do that but have you like tried it because obviously you can pay them better like what they are earning by selling pangolin scales so like they are even convinced about their few food thing and even you can use their scales yeah so what we try to do is um first of all we cannot just say okay you cannot eat monkey anymore and you cannot eat pangolin anymore and not offer anything in in um to replace it because you know in the end everybody still has to eat so i think if first of all we focus on um you know alternative livelihoods and explaining why we should stop eating pangolins and monkeys and and all the animals but most importantly what we focus on in a lot of our projects is eco guards and so liberia is a very poor country and there's not many job opportunities and we want to train people from local communities that are surrounding for example a national park or a protected area and if they get paid to protect the area instead of getting paid for selling the animals that that they caught um you provide an alternative and um we want because like you said these people know the forest inside and out they know what lives there what doesn't live there they know they know the forest inside and out and they should use that knowledge to the advantage of the animals uh on how to protect them and so if we if we train local people from local communities to protect the forest instead and give them a salary then they have no or little reason to uh to hunt the animals so this is something that we that we try to do yeah so now let's talk about the wildlife in liberia i was like really keen to talk about that in general mm-hmm. so like what are the three main threats you feel particularly in liberia like apart from habitat destruction climate change what are the three particular threats you feel um wildlife is facing in liberia um i would say um so of course a lot of the the trade is driven by poverty um liberia liberia is a poor country and so a lot of the illegal activity is driven by poverty um and then yeah i would just say lack of education and and just that you know people um don't really have a clue about the 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 destruction that they bring and it's not just wildlife trade it's also the illegal trade in timber 
it's the illegal trade in certain um, minerals or, or you know the, the mining in, in Liberia is also huge I mean it's not just uh, it's not just wildlife trade it's, it's even human trafficking it's it's a lot a lot of problems so um, yeah it, all these problems for example the illegal logging goes hand in hand with the illegal bushmeat trade because if you cut down all the trees the animals literally fall out of the tree and you just have to catch them and sell them so it goes hand in hand and the roads that are built to go into the forest to um, you know for the illegal logging is, is a perfect route as well to smuggle wildlife out of the forest so the same roads are used for illegal logging and to transport wildlife from the forest into the capital so it's a lot of problems combined I think and like we said it all, it all starts with education so um, there's a lack of education about this subject at the moment and that's what we're trying to do now uh, to change it right so are there like particular hubs where um, the illegal wildlife trafficking takes place too like there are there particular countries where like the scales of pangolins or basically the meat of pangolins is sold um, well of course in the capital um, and the, the, a lot of the bushmeat is sold in the capital but then um, we also know that a lot of bushmeat is still being sold um, more in the rural areas in Liberia as well um, but I would say yeah I would say in the capital but now with the confiscation unit patrolling more regularly I have to say we see it a lot less which is great and now we just need to find out if they're actually selling less or if people are hiding it better <laughs> so uh, yeah that's something we need to find out maybe they're more aware now exactly yeah probably I hope so I hope all our efforts pay off and I really hope that they that, that people sell it less now so uh, it's very early in the project but has like Ebola contributed in like reducing the bushmeat trade Yes, so when, the, when Ebola came, there was a lot less consumption of bushmeat. Um, but then once Ebola was under control, everybody started eating bushmeat again. So it only had very little effect for a very short time. And um, yeah, it's also, yeah, it's also just a taste preference I mean, and, and tradition. People have been doing this for, for generation, generations and generations. And then... Um, one disease is not going to stop that and once the disease was under control everybody just went back to eating bushmeat so yeah it's uh it's very much embedded in liberian culture and we've only been around since 2017 so i think that it's very hard to change such a huge tradition in just four years uh, the, this will take time. This will go very gradually and very slowly, but hopefully we will still be in time before certain animal species go extinct. So, yeah. Yeah, I feel that when traditions are involved, you need to go slow. Yes. You cannot just punch them in the face with the fact that you guys are wrong. They won't listen. Exactly. No, it will. It will not work. It's very soft approach, very gentle approach. Because, yeah, it, it's. Uh, and basically what people need to understand is that 
we are saying this for your own good <laughs> because Liberia is a beautiful country it has amazing forests it has amazing beaches it has amazing it's an amazing place and it would be a great place for ecotourism and so we also tell people instead of killing the animals and eating them you should keep them alive because there are a lot of tourists from the, from the US or from Europe or from anywhere that are willing to come to Liberia and pay big money to see a pangolin in the wild or to see a pygmy hippo or a forest elephant or a forest buffalo or bird species or crocodiles or whatever. I mean, this would not only boost the economy in your country, it would create jobs, you know, people need to come by plane, the airport would benefit from this, these people would have to stay in a hotel, they would have to eat, drink, travel, the, the jobs that it would create is huge. But of course, this is just, this is future plans. People are hungry today. So if we tell them you can make, I don't know, $2,000 in a few years by keeping them alive, by keeping the animals alive, that will not fill their stomachs today. So they will still sell a pangolin for $25 and buy a bag of rice with that $25 because they are hungry today. People here, don't really think about how much money they can make in two years because you don't even know if two years is going to happen. So, it, you know, it's very short-term thinking. So um, this is also a big part of our awareness that if, you, if they keep animals alive, it will, it will truly benefit Liberia. But it's very difficult to explain this to someone who's hungry uh, today. Yeah, it's like it's all about the macro perspective, but you need to consider the micro ones as well. Like talking about particularly ecotourism, like um, does it also give you an opportunity to introduce some of these species, like which are not the keynote species, like not lions, not tigers, some of these species that are endemic to Liberia. Exactly, exactly. We always say that we are a sanctuary for the underdog because we have species that nobody knows. Um, but although nobody knows them, they are still here and they need help. So, um, yes, it's true, we don't have the, well, we do have chimpanzees in Liberia, which is, um, which is an uh, iconic species, of course. And then, yeah, it would be very beneficial to raise, a, there, there are animals here in Liberia that only occur in Liberia. So this is a very unique place for wildlife, and that itself is a major uh, sales pitch. <laughs> uh, you can see animals in Liberia that only occur in Liberia. So that, that in itself is very special. But like, why don't you have chimps in the sand city, considering that you have had like 10 long years of experience with chimps and gorillas? Yes. <laughs> uh, well, because there is a, a chimpanzee sanctuary here in Liberia. So um, there is a chimpanzee sanctuary here. There's one in Guinea. There's one in Sierra Leone. There's one in Côte d'Ivoire. But there's nothing for all the other animals. And rescuing and rehabilitating chimpanzees is a completely different approach. It, it requires a lot of space. It requires a lot of investment and in infrastructure. And we just uh, felt like, okay, there is a place where chimpanzees can go to and where they receive the best care possible. So let's just focus now on, the other, on all the other species uh, where there is no place for them to go to. So, um, yeah, that's why. That's why. Like, you have worked for 10 years with chimpanzees. So, are there any, like, personal problems that you have with chimpanzees? Like, 
they are like difficult to keep or difficult to interact with like are there some problems because chimps are like very much related to humans yes so chimpanzees um of course when they're babies it's all cute and cuddly and it's all you know they they, they are cute like any other baby animal but uh, they do grow up to be very strong incredibly strong and aggressive uh animals so this is another reason why people shouldn't keep them as pets um they don't stay small and cute forever it's a wild animal and they they can actually hurt you so um yeah so infrastructure wise rehabilitation wise it's a it's a completely different approach than uh, the animals we have here so we feel like if they specialize in chimpanzees that's great we will specialize in everything else so like earlier you just said that liberia is more of like a developing nation you have gone through several um civil wars and ebola crisis and now covid so like it's more of a developing country and like most of its work is like industrial and agriculture only which involves like cutting down a large number of forest areas as well but like i really had a question i don't have any perspective on this i am like trying to form a perspective on this topic so that's why i really wanted to ask you so basically i feel that conservation and development are very difficult to take to um take on together because for development you need to cut down a forest area to set up industries for the economic good of the country but you need to have forest area as well for the good of its species so like do you have any suggestion like how can a country or a person can take conservation and development together that is indeed a very difficult question uh, i would have to think on that one i don't have an answer for that on the top of my head but it is true it's very difficult it is very difficult um yeah i would have to think about that <laughs> like particularly in india recently um uh, there were plans to like um remove a whole forest of madhya pradesh and in um in that for madhya pradesh is basically a state in india so in that forest there lives like a lot of tribes and animal species as well only to set up a mining industry so a bit of my view point was that it would be like more of a like temporary employment for the people as well and to like convince the tribes to just move away from there a tribe who has been staying there for like hundreds of years if not hundreds like for a couple of decades and like and they are the ones who have like really coexisted with wildlife and like seeing them to just move on and do something else like it's really like a shock for them to take it yeah yeah i can imagine i can imagine uh, yeah i can imagine it's a very difficult i mean there there are, there are a lot of people uh, on this planet and uh, we're only taking up more space yeah so uh, it it is a very difficult task yeah yeah so i really wanted to ask this question as well i wanted to ask that um do you feel that since libasa has been set up and today do you think that you guys have had a very significant impact on the wildlife in liberia and if you had to like point it like um give it points from 10 wow um well in those 4 years uh we have um we had uh 587 animals coming in and we have released 286 so uh and and we are working towards releasing monkeys that would be a first for the for the country so that's a, that's pretty special um i think we have made an impact for sure i think we have um yeah 
we, we, first of all, we still have a long way to go. We, yeah, we still have a very long way to go. Liberia is pretty big. So we still have to do a lot of awareness and a lot of education. But I would say we've also um, educated a lot of people on the problems as well. And I feel like we are on the right track. And for the animals, I would say that we are... If I had to rate myself out of 10, I think for the animals would be... Um, yeah, would be an 8. Um, an eight. And, but when it comes to awareness, there's still so much to do. Um, I would, yeah, I would give, I mean, what we've done is good, but we still have to do so much more. So it's, it's, yeah, um, yeah, it's very, very, it's a lot of work. Yeah, like moving on to like earlier what you just said that people are hungry today. Yeah. So like something needs to be done today to feed them today. Yes. So that you are also able to convince them about what they can do tomorrow. Right. Yes. So what do you feel that is the government doing enough to feed them today? And what are the steps? Like is the government supportive in this case? So the government is really helping us with the awareness part, which is great. Um, but um, yeah, it, it's not easy. It's it's um, we are not here to um, oh, we are not here to end poverty but we are here to rescue animals, but at the same time, we have to end poverty as well because it goes hand in hand. Someone once told me, and, and I thought that was very accurate, um, it was about the pangolins. Someone told me, you are not going to save pangolins by saving pangolins. You're going to save pangolins by educating people and providing an, an alternative. So basically, when we focus on the people, the animals will be saved. It's like when you when you just focus on the animals, but you don't focus on the cause, then what's the point of saving all these animals? So I found it very accurate when they said you're not saving animals by saving animals, you're saving animals by saving people. And that's that's basically what we need to do. It's a it's a completely shift it's a complete shift in, in focus. And so um, we have to empower people, we have to educate people, we have to provide alternatives and make sure that people are empowered and when people are empowered they will leave animals alone and they will, uh, you know, they will no longer be the need to hunt in the forest and destroy the forest because there will be alternatives and people will be educated on why they shouldn't do it. So this is actually a very important uh, message that if you want to save animals and the planet save the people first and the rest will come yeah so like talking about um we just had talk about bushmeat and illegal wildlife trade so like do you feel in the last 10 years not like only Liba um, libasa working on them but like um the 10 years like a decade like let's take a decade so like in a decade has the condition of illegal wildlife trade and bushmeat um, improved because like after reading the stats that because I feel that the internet doesn't provide you like accurate stats. So like that's why I'm having a podcast with you like to discuss the ground reality. So even though the urban centers have increased in Liberia over like a few percent. But do you feel that the situation of illegal wildlife trade and bushmeat is, has evolved as well? It is very difficult to, to, um, to say because we've only been around like you said for four years and we've only been doing active law enforcement for four years which is not really a long time um, to see actual results 
But I do know that when I arrived here in 2017, every time I went to town, I saw people holding up animals, dead animals, holding up pangolins. Every junction, there was animals on the on the on the tarmac uh, to be sold. Um, and it was you, you saw it quite often. And now I have to say, since the start of the confiscation unit, I don't see it anymore when I go to town. But like I said, this is something we would have to investigate a little more. Has it actually stopped or are people just better at hiding it? So, um, yeah, I do think there is something happening. Change is happening. And the fact that people hide it means that people now know that it's illegal which is already a great step forward. So, um, yeah, I think, I think if you would ask that question in another six years and then we're 10 years down the line, then I think it would be better, I would be better, uh, I would have a better answer. But I think four years, there's definitely things changing, but I think it, it's very naive to think that we will stop a tradition that has been going on for generations, that we are just going to stop that in four years. That I highly doubt, um, but yeah, things are changing for the better. So that's a, that's a good start. Yeah. So like even I that day I was seeing a video in which like the rural people, like not all rural people. I'm not blaming everyone, but like a few a village of them. I'm not aware like which particular village. So like they were blackmailing some tourists, showing them a chim baby, because like he was obviously scared that the chim baby was obviously scared. Like you said, he had seen his like whole family die in front of him. So like he was already depressed and the family felt like they should um, take him but later they realized that it would only like increase the demand of uh, like if they buy them, if they buy that particular chimp they are going to go again in the forest, kill a whole family, get another chimp and then blackmail another set of tourists and then sell them. So like, like what do you think in a particular situation like this should a person save that particular chimp or like think of the macro perspective and like let him be there and not in uh, like not encourage the people to kill more chimps. Well, I think the chimp definitely has to be rescued, and uh, it's a great opportunity then to raise awareness. And um, yeah, because I think if you don't, if you wouldn't rescue that chimpanzee in that particular moment, then you're only setting the wrong example. Um, it is wrong. Uh, especially for chimpanzees which, which are critically endangered. I mean, it is wrong to keep them and there should be no exception. I think it is the same with uh, guns or with drugs. When it's illegal, it's illegal. And uh, that's the best interest of the chimp. And it is just, uh, yeah, it would set the wrong example. So I would definitely um, rescue the chimp. But won't you think that would increase the demand for more chimps and they would blackmail another set of tourists? Well, no, because we would, you would confiscate the chimp and you would educate why it's being confiscated and then um, just educate on, on why it is wrong. And I think it will actually, it, wouldn't, it would uh, discourage people from getting chimpanzees from the forest because they would know what's the point in getting one, they're going to take it away from me anyway and I might end up in prison. So it's not worth the risk. So it's it's yeah. I think it would decrease the demand. But like according to the um, Liberian laws, do you guys that straight away take the hunters to the prison, or do you do you like guys prefer to first um uh, give them some knowledge and make them aware of the situation? We have done a lot of awareness. 
um, at first. And so we, the, the first stage of the law enforcement was awareness and people got away with a warning. Um, but there has to be a point where you stop your awareness and where you have to do active law enforcement and where you have to say, okay, from now on, there's no more excuse. We've done awareness for so long. It's been on the radio. It's been on billboards. It's been, you know, all over town that it's illegal. We now have to start uh, taking action. So, um, yeah. Um, uh, sorry, what, what was the question again? Like, my question was that according to the Liberian laws, do you guys, like, straight away take the person to the prison? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes, yes. Yes, okay, so we, we um, so first there was awareness, now there is active law enforcement, and um, now people get prosecuted and uh, are taken to prison when the court deems necessary. So people either get away with a fine, uh, financial fine, or are sent to prison. So, um, yeah, but we are also revising the wildlife law at the moment. And um, that fine will, uh, that law will have even bigger fines, and it will be, um, yeah, without all the loopholes and without the, yeah, it, it will be, it will be even stricter. And like, are more of the rescues done in rural areas or in urban areas? Oh yeah, everywhere, everywhere. Mm, that, that's sad that people are not understanding the situation of. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's why we have a big job ahead of us to. Um, to uh, do awareness, to raise awareness. So now, since we're coming to the end of the podcast, like, how can people approach you and how can people contribute to the mission of Libasa Wildlife Sanctuary as well? Uh, so we have a website, libasawildlifesanctuary.org, and then people can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. And if people want to help us in our uh, mission, then they, people can always donate through, uh, through our website. So uh, they can learn a lot... Um, they can learn about the work that we do and then yeah if they feel like they want to contribute that is always very welcomed do you guys offer volunteer programs as well not at the moment but we want to so the reason we don't have a voluntary program a volunteer program at the moment is because we don't have any facility to or accommodation to house volunteers but we are working towards getting um some uh, some rooms to house and accommodate the volunteers and if we have that we might start uh, a volunteer program so then we are yeah then anyone can come and help us out so the last two questions that i need to ask you the first one is what do you feel is a common man's relation in liberia with the liberian wildlife like talking about india being honest a general man's relation with wild the indian wildlife is like very careless I'm um, not the thing that they're not aware of wildlife, but they feel that it's not worth saving them. And like they are not aware of it. They're not understanding the depth of the situation. For example, if a particular species vanishes, um, assume, vanishes a day. So like what impact will it have on the whole ecosystem? So I feel that they are very careless in India. But what's the situation in Liberia? Um, it's the, the, the relationship between Liberians and wildlife, I would say, is that the nature is more of a tool that everybody can use. Um, I feel like people believe that they, instead of coexisting with the forest, people feel like they own the forest and they can just take whatever they want, which is of course not true. 
we need the forest to survive. Without the forest, we, we will not last long either. So instead of uh, living next to each other, I feel like there's more, I, uh, we feel like, I feel like in Liberia, people feel all the animals are just for me to take, for me to eat, all the trees are for me to cut. Um, yeah, so it's more of a, a very dominant relationship towards, uh, towards nature and wildlife. Um, what message do you have for the general audience who are listening to this podcast and r- your v- views on this particular podcast? How did you feel? I, I really, really liked it. I, I, yeah, it was a very nice chat and I'm very, very honored and, and grateful that you called <laughs> and to, yeah, for us to spread the message. I mean, we're all trying to do our, our part. We're all trying to do our best. We are a small sanctuary, but we want to be a small sanctuary with great impact Um, we're not saving the world here but we are saving a small part of the world and so um, yeah I feel like people need to reconnect with nature and that people should really like we like we said live alongside nature and not just dominate nature and not just take whatever you want it doesn't work that way Um, there's a lot of people in the world at the moment we all have to live we all have to eat but it has to be done in a more sustainable way in good relationship with nature because we need nature nature needs us Um, I mean yeah we we just need to yeah coexist a bit better that that's how I feel human greed should um, human greed has no place in in the world that that's how we feel so um, yeah, and I'm like like I said, we are a sanctuary of the underdogs. We don't have lions and tigers and and all the you know popular, famous, iconic species. But it doesn't mean that they don't need rescuing and they don't need saving. Uh, so I'm very grateful that I was given the opportunity to talk about these animals and actually give them a voice um, because not many people know they exist, but we know that they're in trouble. And so I'm very grateful that I was given a platform and be their voice and that people will help, hopefully help us so that we can help them. Okay, so thank you so much thank for the you podcast. So much. I feel that we need to do a part two for this yes. and I need to know your views on the development and conservation thing as well. And also I feel that people and personally I can learn a lot from you about the Liberian wildlife considering that I live in India. So I feel that we are definitely going to do a part 2 very soon. So guys, this was the complete podcast with Julie Vanessa ma'am. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have made it so far, then please don't forget to check out the social media handles of Libasa Wildlife Sanctuary. It would also mean the world to me if you could donate any amount you wish to the sanctuary on their side. Also feel free to reach out to me with suggestions and ideas on how you want to be educated about wildlife and I'll make it happen for you. You can also reach out to me for more suggestions of people you want me to do a podcast with. See you on the next podcast, but until then, don't forget the three magical words, conservation, preservation and education. And that's what this show stands for.